Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. On the show today, we have part two of my conversation with Dan Shaw, where we talk more about the election and we talk more about sort of what's happening in the world. And also today about kind of how to unpack all that's happening and also how a narcissist affects society, affects a whole country. And also a little bit about the need for more education and prevention in schools to teach about how movements get started that are important, that are vital, and that also can be destructive. So Dan Shaw is a licensed clinical social worker. He is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City and in Nyack, New York. He was originally trained as an actor at Northwestern University and with the renowned teacher Uta Hagen in New York City. Dan later worked as a missionary for an Indian guru. His eventual recognition of cultic aspects of this organization led him to become an outspoken activist in support of individuals and families traumatically abused in cults. Simultaneous with leaving this group, Dan began his training in the mental health profession, becoming a faculty member and supervisor at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies in New York, publishing papers in psychoanalytic inquiry, contemporary psychoanalysis, and psychoanalytic dialogues, and most recently publishing his book, Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation, for the Relational Perspective series, which was nominated for a distinguished award. In 2018, the International Cultic Studies Association awarded him with the Margaret Thaler Singer Award for advancing the understanding of coercive persuasion and undue influence. Dan's book, Traumatic Narcissism and Recovery, Leaving the Prison of Shame and Fear, will be published by Rutledge in 2021, and I cannot wait to read it. Here is the second half of my conversation with my colleague and friend, Dan Shaw. There's a very dangerous situation. And and I think there's also something interesting about how Trump has talked about starting his own party, the Patriot Party. It just shows he has allegiance to no one. No one. I mean, here, here the Republican Party backed him up. And they were willing to put up with him and right. agree with him. Some really do agree with him and others just tolerated him. And they got nothing for it because now he's saying, you are all traitors and you didn't do as you should. And I'm moving on. If that's not enough of, of kind of proof that Trump is only allegiance to himself, I'm not sure what is. I mean, I hope that would get the message across. Any malignant narcissist eventually will throw everybody under the bus sooner or later. Certainly towards, uh, you know, in a crisis, they will throw everybody under the bus. And the fact that Ivanka and Jared aren't under the bus yet, I don't know. I, I, that could happen in my view. Everybody goes under the bus or they drink the Kool-Aid or they go up in flames. But that's what's going to happen. If you have given everything to a guru, you don't usually come out with anything. Okay, right. So that leads me to something that you had mentioned about unpacking this. So not only do 
people in his family need to, I mean, they, he reveals himself over and over again in more ways that are raw over and over again, I think, and unabashed. But I, I do think that for some people in his family, they're going to need to kind of figure out what to do with this person and how to heal, I think, also from the devotion that they gave him that was unfounded. And then also as a nation. So, you know, people have probably said to you, so how do we, um, you know, deprogram the, the country? And so I'm curious, I mean, what are people going to need now in order to heal from this? And also the people, I mean, I know there's still people who are prone to looking towards and following the loudest and more, most charismatic person in the room. And so that's a whole other issue. I was hoping you had all the answers to those questions. No question. I don't at all. I have some, I have some and you have some. So let's combine them, collect them. Well, a bunch of friends this uh, this summer were reading the book Cast, C-A-S-T-E, by Joyce Wilkerson. And it's about the caste system in America that began with slavery. And it's an excellent book. And it's so clearly argued and very accessible because it's very human. And um, my sister was telling me about it. And she's in a book club. And one of the women in the book club had grown up in Germany. and when they were discussing this book, the German woman was saying, do you know that when we grew up in Germany in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, up to the present, you begin learning about what the Nazis did in grade school. You begin learning about empathy and you learn about what the Nazis did in grade school. And then you learn more in middle school and more in high school and more in college. Every German is educated about the horrors of Nazism and what it meant, what, what that kind of authoritarian, autocratic, totalitarian rule means and uh, how dangerous it is and how to be, and, and preventive information about it. We have nothing like that in this country. Well, in college, now we have African American and Black studies and civil rights studies. We do college kids at many liberal arts colleges receive that education, but certainly not all the colleges, by no means. And we certainly don't get a full-on education about this early on. I mean, uh, my kids had bullying education growing up in in grade school, but certainly nothing about you know, the Holocaust or fascism or any of that. It's like this country? No, we don't have that problem. Well, we do. It's our origin story, the genocide of the indigenous population and slavery. I mean, what do we, how do we, how do we dissociate that this is not our story? It's, it's this dissociation, this collective dissociation about who we are as a country. We're not those people. Wait a minute. No, actually, that's our origin story. And, you know, that denial, that um, dissociation, I, I think that's a tremendous problem. And um, at the root of much of what we're struggling with now in terms of the socio-political, socio-cultural world we're in. I don't know how Americans start being educated about this without adults absolutely going through the roof. Well, if you're going to teach our children that, we're going to homeschool them. We're not sending them to a school where they're going to be told that we're not the greatest, right? 
So we really have a problem. We need to educate our, our people in this country about the sins of the past. And the education is not to make us feel ashamed or guilty. It's to help us realize that we don't want to repeat this history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, everybody knows that history not remembered gets repeated. And that's, that's happening. Right. It, it is happening. And I think people who say, oh, this has never happened before, you know, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So what changes the flavor of it is unfortunately now because of social media, things can get passed to the millions within seconds. And so that does change the landscape quite a bit. It sure does. It sure does. I mean, I am, as you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. I, I'm I'm a user of social media and I despise some of the policies of Facebook and Twitter. And yet I make use of it because it keeps me connected to people in ways that I enjoy. Right. It's selfish, I guess. Uh, and I hope that we'll find ways of reforming YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and all of the other platforms. We need regulation. And in this country, our first amendment rights are protected so that people can incite a murderous insurrection because that's protected. We got to do something about that. I don't know what. I'm a civil liberty. I, you know, I, I'm a member of the ACLU, but I do not want, I don't want hate speech to be uh, unaddressed. Uh, Something has to be done about that. And it is done in other European countries, right? Not just hate speech, but cults are dealt with in some legal way that limit their ability to do harm. I mean, if I may, Rachel, just one more thought. You're probably going to think about it yourself, but we're also looking at this incredible radicalization globally that has been going on now um, before 9-11 and since. The problems that people are looking at in terms of de-radicalization, those groups need to come together with the cult expert groups and with other professionals and academics of all varieties. Mm -hmm. I would love to be invited to a think tank about how do we stop the spread of disinformation and educate people about freedom versus fascism. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Every once in a while, I follow the latest charts and other things for my podcast to see where it's popular. And what has been interesting and fairly consistent is that a podcast called Indoctrination has been very popular in Eastern Europe and Lithuania and Poland and Germany. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's awesome. And I'm so glad. And, you know, knowing, you know, a lot of my, my relatives perished and here people are listening to my voice. Really? That's amazing. But I also know that they're probably interested because it's still an issue. So I'm, I'm happy about it. And it's also a bit alarming that it still needs to be on people's radar because of this, because of a, a growing movement of people who feel that that's their way to gain power. I mean, I know, again, as a psychotherapist, the people who 
who lose it, the ones who, I don't know, torture place or the ones who even hit their spouse, they're not the ones who are exerting power. They're the ones who actually have lost their power because, you know, power comes, actually it takes more strength, I think, to have self-control than to, right, to take over and use yourself to, um, to hurt somebody else. But I think that it should be taught in schools. And I wonder also, you know, I'm thinking of all the, there was something that I quoted um, that it was actually kind of a funny thing, but it was true. And it said, if I had a dollar for every time I used algebra as an adult, I'd have N dollars. <laughs> and I've never, Trig, no, as a therapist, I don't know. Um, but what I could have learned in that moment instead is not only, let's say, sex education, but relationship education. And parenting education. And parenting, right. And society, education, how to be, right. And maybe to start small. I mean, sometimes sometimes we learn in a global sense about hate speech and about fascism. And also maybe if we learn in a small way, this is how you should be treated by another person. And this is how you should not be treated or allow yourself to be treated by another person. And maybe if people understand it on an interpersonal level, then when they see it on a grand scale, they'll recognize it's the same thing. Children should learn what empathy is. They should, it should be taught. And I believe there's one Scandinavian country where that is explicitly a part of the curriculum. Oh, right. Yes. I think that there is also this sense with some people in our population and in others that all of those things make you weak. It's really a shame. And I, and I think also with men, I mean, boys are really done a disservice by having their, you know, emotions and behaviors that are akin to or tied in with compassion seen as weakness. Absolutely. And psychotherapy used to be a male-dominated uh, profession when psychotherapists, specifically psychoanalysts, were extremely authoritarian. As the authoritarianisms started getting rooted out of psychotherapy, more and more of the profession is a woman's profession. The whole uh, issue of toxic masculinity, of course, ties into all of this and ties into racism and ties into abuse of power. And yet women are, are uh, susceptible as well. You know, in many, like Amy Coney Barrett's uh, religion, the Supreme Court justice that Trump appointed, you know, a woman is, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm assuming that she's expected to co come home from her job, cook, clean, and take care of the children. Because a woman, her place is in the home and uh, she is meant to be submissive to the husband. In that, in her religion, and in so many others now, not just Christian. You know, we got some problems in our society. Right. It's true. It's true. And I heard someone say, and I don't know who it was, where they said that Trump was the most manly president that we've ever had. A lot of people were saying that. And they painted pictures of him with muscles and, you know, heroic poses. And, you know, here's the thing. You, and I, you live in L.A. I live in New York. We're not living among the vast populace of this country who do not agree with us and who do not get the education we get. And uh, that, that's, there's a problem we, we have as a nation, you know. So this division, this dividedness that Trump exploited so skillfully 
you know, it's been there all along. Somebody was, it was just waiting for somebody to monetize it and make the most of it. I wanted to ask about that. And it's reminding me actually of something I haven't thought about in a while that my father used to say that, that he had always aspired to be the way he thought a man should be, which was quietly confident. And so there was something about not talking about all of your successes, but just knowing them or just still working towards them and feeling good about that, but having an internal dialogue and not needing to, you know, show all your toys, which is very interesting. And I guess, you know, that was certainly not an ideal of Trump's. But when you were saying that uh, with the timing now of him being brought into office, what do you think made us ripe for this right now? What was happening before and what was I think what was stirring people up so that they wanted someone who they really perceived as a powerhouse? Well, I'll try not to be too uh, all over the place with my answer to that. But let me start with people like Rupert Murdoch and other billionaires, uh, the Mercers, the Cokes, the Ulines, and others. None of them like having a Black president. None of them like women having power, and uh, all of them like domination and control. And they have billions of dollars. And so they funded these fake grassroots movements like the Tea Party, which was entirely funded by this, this dark money of the billionaire conservatives, and you know promoted the Reaganism and trickle-down economics. And all of this... In my view, again, this is going to be a little radical for some. All of this, in my view, represents the last gasp of white supremacy. You know, and the black president was uh, twice was just the last straw. And Trump was a, a flagrant white supremacist from the get-go. It wasn't hidden. And uh, a lot of people who would look like your neighbor and mow the lawn nicely and not make too much noise and not have garbage out front, we're on board. Not just the crazies we saw at the Capitol during the insurrection, but lots of nice church-going, synagogue-going, middle-class people. The ugly secret is the white supremacy, which is funded and, and stoked and supported by the oligarchs, the billionaires, these conservative billionaires who basically want a world where they get to keep all their money and nobody gets to have any. You know, nobody who needs a leg up, nobody who's been historically deprived or persecuted. None of those people are going to get a penny from these billionaires if they can help it. You know, so they want a society that's truly an oligarchy. A bunch of rich people have all the power. Everybody else works for, you know, works at McDonald's. When you follow the money, it always comes back to these billionaires, these conservative billionaires behind all of these movements. Apparently now today, we're learning that um, the Trump campaign contributed $3 million to the organizers of the protest on the 6th in Washington. You know, and look who's supporting the Trump campaign, these oligarch billionaires. So we have a real problem with crazy people uh, like Rupert Murdoch or, or Charles Koch, who really believe that most people are, are, are just garbage and only the most wealthy people matter. I, I think that's how I would answer. 
Yeah. And I think you're right. And I'm thinking also about a study that I read uh, about the level of sociopathy as you move up the food chain in Fortune 500 companies, especially, and that they're the ones who don't mind poisoning the waterway to make their product and um, having it be the thing that the poorer families bathe in and wash their clothes in and drink. There was a movie Steve Carroll did based on the real story of members of the DuPont family. And it's a real, I forget the title, but it's a psychological study in the sociopathy of the aristocratic class in this country. Wow. Okay. So to know that then, you know, these people are supporting Trump, Trump's going to love that, but that they have, they're, they're to a great degree are devoid of conscience means then I think that it's incumbent upon us, just the two of us, um, and, and a couple other people, hopefully, <laughs> to keep a watchful eye, to educate the young, to really do what you can to make a movement happen where people can see it for what it is, they can protect themselves, because otherwise, it, you know, this is going to happen again. History will repeat itself. Well, you know what's encouraging? Things like the popularity of Hamilton. I mean, oh my gosh how popular that show would be packed houses for the next 10 years, if not COVID. And um, that poet, uh, that wonderful woman at the inauguration, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the creativity and the, and the wisdom and the, and the thoughtfulness of, of uh, artists coming up now, that gives me hope and joy. We'll just have to see what this battle for the soul of the human race, where it's going. You know, uh, Greta Thunberg is trying to tell us we are uh, destroying our planet. And she's just a 16-year-old girl. Somehow she's piercing the veil and um, she's up against Charles Koch and Rupert Murdoch. You know, 16-year-old versus the billionaires. And yet she has a voice and there is power in it. So I'm hopeful that younger people are doing things that are good. Right. Yes. And what was her? Oh, Amanda Gorman. That's who you were referring to. Right. Incredible. Really incredible. So inspiring. So inspiring. So inspiring. Uh, Right. So, okay. So then I think maybe our job is also to see what we can do to produce more Greta Thunberg's and Amanda Gorman's and to help foster them and to help kind of give them that space and support and to see if there are other people who can join forces and lend their voices. Two more things that I wanted to ask about. One is about the people who were the conspiracy theorist followers and who were egged on by Trump and what is happening to them now and what can help them now. And then also a little bit about what you think about Trump and Melania's relationship. Because, and maybe we'll start with that, because that I always found it interesting. There, you know, there was this um, footage that was sort of a compilation video of all the times that she would swat his hand away <laughs> when he'd, he'd go to reach for her hand and she'd swat it away. And I thought, wow, how does she get away with that? right? And doing that publicly, what is that? What is in their relationship? That Because a lot of people have a lot of questions about that. Well, I think of them as, uh, you know, vipers in the same nest. I think that she is complicit, you know, in the hate mongering 
in the sociopathy and benefits from it. You know, their their arrangements strikes me as uh, what often happens when you see, um, you know, malignant narcissists who are aligned and who are partners, they often um, end up uh, trying to destroy each other. This happened in Siddha Yoga when the female guru got rid of the brother, the male guru, you know, violently expelled him, her brother. They were both supposed to share the, you know, the organization. And she had an ally, Gurumai did, uh, George Afif was his name, who assisted her in violently expelling her brother. Well, it wasn't long before the trustees had to expel George Afif because of all of his sexual predatory activity and also costing the organization millions of dollars in for various uh, boondoggles of his. So you see these narcissists as partners, they, they just uh, turn against each other at some point. And I think that's what we, I think Melania had turned against Trump before the White House and it only made it worse. So, you know, she played the part, and uh, we'll see what happens where this all ends for the two of them. Uh, so that's uh, I can't say much more about it because obviously I'm speculating, but that's sort of how it works to me. Right. I mean, but if you work with that population, and I'm sure it's also fairly common where you see multiple relationships and marriages and divorces where there isn't a consistency with a relationship that is equal and whatever else, it gets complicated. All right. And so then moving on to the people, the QAnon followers, the others. And, you know, I know that the the radicalized groups are out there still and trying to increase their efforts now that they're feeling leaderless. They're needing to feel like they have to take this into their own hands and that is chilling. And there are also some people who were, I don't know, like kind of uh, brought to a, a froth, a frenzy by the Alex Jones of this world and by Trump and by others. And then as they saw all of their predictions, even about the inauguration day, that horrible things were supposed to happen that day and that they never happened, I think they started to have the sinking feeling that maybe they weren't right as nothing was going wrong. And so some of them have posted videos in tears. I mean, that's like they had a dopamine crash and uh, and they woke up from this dream and uh, they don't know where they are and who to listen to. And they're waiting for their, you know, they're waiting for the leader to come back or another leader to take over. And so how do we address that? Right. A lot of them are astonished that Trump did not issue pardons for them. They were expecting to have pardons issued. That's why they were so brazen in the Capitol. Trump told us to go here, and if we get in trouble, we'll get pardoned. That's what they believed. So, of course, they got thrown under the bus. You know, I guess we've seen this. I'm thinking of Heaven's Gate. I'm thinking of uh, People's Temple, Jim Jones. I'm thinking of these groups where ultimately... The end game was that you would kill yourself, you know, because that would be the ultimate act of final liberation and proof that your leader was always right all along. And basically, once you're dead, you can't prove otherwise, you know, it's just an awful thing. So I guess 
I don't know how these people are going, what they're going to do, how they're going to get help, if they're going to get help. But I do know that this is what history shows us, that if you follow a malignant narcissist leader, you will uh, ultimately, there will be destruction and devastation. It will take everything from you and give you back nothing in the end. And this is true of any relationship with a malignant narcissist, a traumatizing narcissist. They take everything from you and they really leave you with nothing in the end. And what you were promised was that you would have everything. And you're the one doing the dirty work. You're the one getting injured. You're the one getting killed. You're the one getting arrested. And they're safely tucked away somewhere. Oh, yeah. Another great movie that showed that scenario was called Safe with um, Julianne. Uh, Julianne Moore? Yeah. It's called Safe. And she uh, joins a, a little cult. And they're in a circle where the leader's trying to get them to all talk about you know, why they hate themselves. And behind him, you see his castle of a house up on the hill while they're all in their communal tents and little, you know, outdoor campground. The leader stays protected and everybody else does the dirty work and and pays for it. And pays for it, right, exactly. And I think, you know, also when Trump said in this speech, uh, as people were about to go up to the Capitol, I'll be with you. And I thought, no, you're not. <laughs> There's no, what? You're not going to be doing that at all. But I think in the melee and with the hundreds of people, people weren't looking for Trump necessarily, but they didn't, I don't think they noticed he wasn't there. And no. it's so important. I mean, I think I juxtapose somebody being in their ivory tower and sending people off to fight their cause and with, you know, the visions, let's say, of Martin Luther King Jr., who, when he cared about a cause, he marched with the people who also cared about the cause. And not only did he march with them, he was in front. So he was literally in the firing line. Yes. Because that's how much he cared. And, and he, he knew, he knew that he was a target. And all the people around him knew he was allowing himself to be that target. And he did it anyway. And so maybe one of the other things that people need to learn in school is what it means to be a leader and how to be a leader and how to have a cause and how to not be taken advantage of for someone else's cause. Really, really. There's so much we could be including in our in what we want to teach our children. Uh, but this is a very divided nation, more so than ever right now. And there is not national unity and there won't be. We had it after World War II, more or less. But we didn't have it during the Depression. There were tons of people who despised FDR, despised the New Deal. And the people who despised the New Deal have become the Reaganites and the Karl Robes and the conservatives in government and the Ted Cruz's. And so we've never really been united, except for that one moment after World War II, we knew we had done the right thing. We all felt good for having done the right thing. And we could all take pride in it. But, you know, the other fissures in our uh, national unity just you know, started opening up again. Right. Which says something, I think, about human nature. And so I think that's why it's good. You, sometimes the education you give people is to kind of 
counterbalance human nature. Yes. And I know, you know, I know we're coming towards the end of our conversation and I'm cautiously optimistic. I am not entirely pessimistic. I certainly am worried. You know, those of us who have children, as you do and I do, we care about this stuff because this is the world that we're going to be leaving them. And uh, it would be nice to leave it a little better than when when we got here ourselves, right? You know, you're. Uh, I'm very um, proud of your uh, podcast. It is so well done and it is so popular. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's a tremendous contribution. You know, we make... We make the best contribution we can, given uh, who we are and what we're capable of. And we got to hope that it you know, amounts to something. It may not heal the whole nation, but that we still have to go and do it anyway, right? So uh, thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you. And if you don't mind just mentioning your books again, the one that is going to come out and the one that has, and where people can find you. The current book is uh, available on Amazon. It's an academic book, so unfortunately, it's a little expensive, but it's called Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation. And then the new book should be out sometime later this year, published by Rutledge. That'll end up on Amazon as well. I asked them to make the print larger and the price lower. We'll see if they we'll see if they'll do it. And uh, it's going to be called Traumatic Narcissism and Recovery, Leaving the Prison of Shame and Fear. I have a website. I'm easy to find, Daniel Shaw, LCSW, my licensed clinical social worker. So uh, that'll pop right up if you look for the website. And you can contact me, all the contact info's on there. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you for your time today. And it's been great just staying in contact with you. And good to see you, good to speak with you. And I hope to do both again soon. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to see you. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you so much to Dan Shaw for his wisdom and for the great conversation we had. If you didn't have a chance to hear part one of our conversation, listen to the episode from last week. It is so important to talk about the things I think that Dan and I talked about. Of course, I'm going to think it's important, but I hope you feel that it's important too and interesting to you. What I think is really incredible is how little people are taught. And Dan and I touched on this a bit today. There is so little education about cults, about influence, manipulation, undue influence, about what your rights are, and how to say no to people. People don't learn sometimes that it's okay to say no. People learn that they should be kind of acquiescent, that they should say yes a lot of the time. And while that's good and socially appropriate in a lot of situations, You want to feel okay, more than okay, saying no to people who are trying to take something away from you and are trying to keep you from being able to set a boundary. But moving on into something that is of vital importance is 
this idea that history does repeat itself. And while there are some details that are always going to be different within this historical context, the repetition has to do with human nature. There are people who want to control other people. There are people who are able at different times in their lives to be able to be controlled. And there are people who will be pushed to be at war with others, at war with themselves. And there will always be people who distrust the powers that be, and sometimes for very good reason. But what you do with that, what you do with that distrust is what matters. And how people can capitalize on that and get you to do things that you wouldn't normally do also matters. There are very few places in our world that teach the kind of history we need to learn and our children and the next generations after them need to learn in order to potentially have history not repeat itself over and over again. There are surprisingly few countries that teach about the Holocaust. There are surprisingly few states within the United States that teach about the Holocaust. And moving beyond the Holocaust, genocides in general, of all kinds, in all places, and teaching about slavery, teaching about the rights of people within the LGBTQ community and the trans community. What's important is also that when, for example, even with this podcast episode, when I mention certain things happening like the Holocaust or certain genocides, I know that I'm going to get mail. I'm going to get responses where people are going to say to me, well, what about this genocide? You didn't mention this one. And what about that one? You didn't mention that one. And I understand that. And I want to be able to talk about that a little bit. There are unfortunately more genocides throughout history, and even happening now, then I have time to list. I truly wish that were not the case. And if I mention the Armenian genocide, but not the Rwandan genocide, it doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. They are equally awful for lots of the same and lots of different reasons. So let's not get mired in what was mentioned and what wasn't. But instead, let's agree, if we can, that what matters is that more people around the world and young people who get to live in the future and hopefully have the world be a different place, a more tolerant place, they get to learn what a genocide is. And not that one is any more important than the other. No matter how awful it was, it's important to those people that it happened to. And in order for it to be called a genocide, we just have to know that it was awful. More than you want to imagine. And what's important there is to learn that it can happen. And to have teachers teach how it happens 
and of course, where it happened and why it happened there, how it got cultivated, and also how it ended, and also why some people deny it, and why some people are determined to diminish the impact of it. And also, hopefully, how to prevent things like this in the future. So if you, within your school system or within your governmental system, feel that there's not enough that's being taught about genocides, about things that are happening to people all over the world, where people are being raised, the next generations coming up are being raised not knowing about these events, but needing to know so that maybe, just maybe, they can have a hand in preventing future events like it. You want to go to organizations like Teaching Tolerance or Southern Poverty Law Center, even National Geographic has great curriculum. United Against Hate, the Museum of Tolerance, Human Rights Campaign, Remember.org. There are many, many, many. You don't have to reinvent the wheel here. There is curriculum out there. Find it, use it, and present it to your school system, to government agencies, and talk about why it's important to teach this and to know this. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.